Good morning. If you'd all take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, uh, verses 23 through 27. Then, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest came up on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and said to him, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the disciples marveled, saying, Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And now let all God's people say, Amen. Let's pray together today as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we do say amen as we come to your Word and we give you praise for your Word and all of its living, active power in our lives. We ask this morning, Father, that you would help us to understand the meaning of your words and to convince us of their truth, their veracity, and to convict us, Father, of sin that remains in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. Father, open our minds, open our hearts, help, help us not to just be hearers of the word today, but more and more to become doers of your word, those who follow truly in the footsteps of Jesus Christ as his disciples. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're, we're taking a little break here over the next several weeks from our study together in the Minor Prophets and the book of Amos. Uh, we're going to next week begin to set our sights in Scripture and into our worship on um, that last and final week of Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion, which of course we're going to celebrate on Good Friday and the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate on Easter Sunday. All of that will be preceded next Sunday with a focus on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, proclaiming himself to be the King of all kings and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, I wanted to precede all of that and focus with you on uh, this uh, very familiar passage, very familiar story to us in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus very famously commanded and calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It just seemed to me like an appropriate piece of Scripture for us to meditate on together, given all the storms that we've been experiencing together in this valley and in Santa Cruz lately, as we've had a very, very wet winter. Um, and it's important for us to keep ourselves focused, isn't it, on the reality that whatever storms we face in life, whether they're actual literal storms like that kind of unexpected one that ripped through the valley here on Tuesday, uh, what did they call that, a bomb cyclone, like, like all of a sudden it went from, oh, it's going to be a half inch of rain to bomb, five, six inches of rain and wind breaking all the trees in half and shutting all the power off and closing all the roads, whether it's, whether it's literal storms like that or more metaphorically, all of those turbulent times and trials of our lives that tend to shake and rock the, the boats of our lives in all kinds of ways, 
uh, that we got to remember that, that in all of that, in every circumstance of life, whatever's going on, even the hard times that are completely out of our control, that in those things, in all of those things, and over all of those things, Jesus reigns with sovereign power and divine authority. Jesus is the Lord of all of the storms. <laughs> Because he is the sovereign Lord of all and we can trust him and we must continue to learn to trust him. And this passage helps us to see a little bit more how this morning. So Matthew's gospel account of Jesus' life is focused specifically, more, more so even than the other three, Matthew's concern is to focus us specifically on the theme of Jesus's kingship and the kingdom of God that Jesus is building. And of course, very central to the idea of kingship, uh, central to the core to the idea of a, of a king and what a king is, is the king's authority over his kingdom to be able to command his will over all that he reigns and rules over. And that's Matthew's great burden in his gospel is to show exactly how much authority and how much power Jesus wields in our lives and in this world as the king of all kings. So all throughout the gospel of Matthew from the earliest chapters he starts to expose us to right off the bat these fantastic supernatural kinds of glimpses of just how much authority Jesus has and wielded even as he was walking this earth 2,000 years ago, and what kind of authority it really is that Jesus has, a unique kind of authority as the God-man who he is. So from, from the earliest chapters in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records Jesus doing remarkable things, like cleansing lepers, healing paralyzed people, curing diseases, Casting out demons, things that not normal people can do. He even says that, that Jesus has the authority and, and proclaims the authority to be able to forgive sins, which is an authority that is exclusively reserved in the Word of God for God Himself. Nobody forgives sins but God Himself because ultimately He is the one against whom all sin is directed. So see, this is... This is who Jesus is. This is the kind of authority that he wields. This is the kind of power that he has because he is the one in whom all of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is the incarnate God. And every time in the book of Matthew that Jesus does these amazing kinds of things, people who are around him are absolutely amazed at his awesome, unique, unprecedented authority. And that's, of course, what's going on here, right? In chapter 8, in this story that all of us have probably heard so many times that we, that we know so well of Jesus calming, just commanding, having the authority to say, be still, and the whole storm stops at the power and the command of his voice and authority. People were amazed. The people in the boat, his disciples, were absolutely amazed. In verse 27, after Jesus does this, the disciples in the boat literally say, 
Who is this God? What kind of a person, what kind of a man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were absolutely astonished at the unique kind of authority that Jesus alone wields. Well, here's the thing that I want us to grab hold of this morning. This story of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee isn't just a story about this amazing thing that Jesus did. The, the message here, the heart of what we're supposed to get out of this, isn't just that Jesus performed a miracle in order to astonish people, right? Oh, you thought that was good, now watch this one. You're really going to like this one. This isn't, this isn't the point of what Jesus is doing. And it's not a story about him wowing his audience. This is, in fact, a story about discipleship. This is a story about what it means to follow Jesus even in the storms. Now, just before this episode, up at the end of chapter 7, Matthew tells us about two men who came to Jesus before he got into this boat to travel to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Two men came to Jesus and said that they wanted to follow Jesus. So the first man said, I'm... I want to follow you and I will follow you wherever you go until Jesus clued him in in terms of what that might look like. What following him might mean. It might mean living a life like Jesus lived. Jesus was the one who said he had no place to rest his head. No home on this earth to call his own. No property, no money, no earthly possessions to rely on for a sense of well-being and meaning and worth and and security and and, and hope in this life. Jesus said, I don't rely on anything in this material world for any kind of hope. And following me might mean that. So Jesus was calling this first guy to forsake all of that, to not anchor his hope and his confidence in life to the things of this world. And that man said, that, that's a bridge too far. I can't go that far with you. And so he turned away and he left. If that's what following Jesus means, I'm not up for it. So then the second man says, I want to follow you. And I'm willing to do all that. But first, see, there's the problem right there. But first... Let me bury my father. So so what the second guy meant is, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere and I'll sacrifice anything, uh, just not yet. Just not right now. I've got things in this world to attend to still. Stuff I need to do. And I, I need to get that all done first. The man's father hadn't died yet. So he's saying, whenever that might be that he dies... Could be 10 years from now, and then I'll bury him. When that season of my life is finished, then I'll follow you. And here's, here's how Jesus responded to him. He said, let the dead bury their own dead. And what he meant was this. He meant people who are spiritually dead. The ones who haven't been made spiritually alive yet are the ones whose loyalties lie more with the things and the people of this world than with Jesus. But the ones who have been made alive, 
who have been raised to new life, reborn by water and spirit, regenerated, are the ones whose eyes are opened to truths and realities and glories by faith that are so magnificent and so great that nothing in this world compares. And they say, I need Jesus and nothing but Him, and I need Him now. Whatever it means, whatever it costs, whatever it takes. Not later. All I have is Christ. So Jesus meant that following Him, see, being His disciple means not having any loyalties and not having any loves for anyone or anything that compete with our loyalty and love and our devotion to Him, that are greater than our loyalty and love and devotion to Him. Following Jesus means the willingness to say, whatever cost you ask me to bear, I gladly, gladly bear it up for you. And when the second man at the end of chapter 7 heard and understood that the cost of discipleship means that, then he too turned away and didn't come back and didn't follow Jesus. So that, that's a little preface to this story here in chapter 8. In the first line of this story that we're, we're looking at today, Matthew says this, verse 23 of Matthew 8, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So those two guys in chapter 7 said, I'm not willing to follow you wherever and whatever the cost and whenever you ask. Here, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. That's a significant statement because, right, (laughs) the two guys earlier didn't follow him. So on the one hand, good for these disciples, right? But on the other hand, it doesn't take very long in this story to see that that these disciples really didn't have a very good idea of, of who it was that they were actually following at all. They were following him. They had... They had left their homes in order to follow him. They had left their land. They had left their jobs in order to follow him. Some of them had left their families in order to follow Jesus, right? They had. They had. Back in um, Matthew chapter 4, Peter and Andrew left their nets lying on the ground to follow Jesus. They were professional fishermen. That's what they did for a living. It's how they put food on the table. And literally, they dropped their nets on the beach. They didn't take time to fold them up and store them safely. They just dropped everything, walked away from their livelihoods in order to follow Jesus. In fact, Matthew said that James and John left their boat and their father who was in the boat to follow Jesus. They're all out there with dad fishing and they see Jesus and they get out of the boat and dad's going, hey, where are you going? See you, Dad. we got to follow Jesus. Over in chapter 9, Matthew says that he himself, Matthew, abandoned his tax collector's booth and went with Jesus the very minute that Jesus said, follow me. So, so that on the one hand, see, point is, they'd heard Jesus' call and they'd acted on it. They'd trusted him. They'd submitted to him 
and to his authority. They'd obeyed his call of discipleship. They'd stepped onto the narrow path that leads to life, and, and they'd done it at, at great cost to themselves because they valued Jesus more. They valued eternity more. They valued the kingdom more. But on the other hand, they totally didn't fully understand at all just who Jesus was and what being his disciples really means. And we see that in this little episode. They're following him, but according to Jesus' own rebuke of them in these verses, as followers of his, their faith in him, when the storm came and started rocking their little boat, making things scary and difficult, their faith in him was weak and small in Jesus' own words. And this is where the story here becomes eminently relevant to all of us who are his followers. And I, I find it very challenging on the one hand and very encouraging on the other hand. On the one hand, here's these guys who have walked away from all of the things of this world, even jobs, even family, in order to follow Jesus. And he says to them, they're in the boat, your faith is little. I mean, ouch, right? Because I I have not given up what these guys had given up already to follow Jesus. I haven't had to make the kinds of sacrifices that these guys did. I mean, I, a lot of us, right? Most of us have a place to call our own, to rest our heads at night. And we have nice earthly possessions that we haven't had to walk away from. He hasn't required that of us. A lot of us haven't had to leave family to follow Jesus because, because our family rejected us as followers of Jesus. Some of you have gone through that, but not all of I have not gone through that. These disciples of Jesus had given a lot up in order to be with them, and yet he's telling them that their faith is little. The Greek word is oligos. It means slight. It means um, uh, a quantity of, of relatively small significance. Like a, a pinch of salt, so tiny that if you put it on your food, it makes no difference to the taste. Little. Insignificant. Your faith is little, Jesus says. Right? It means the flickering light of a candle compared to the brilliance of the sun. So if Jesus is saying that about the faith of guys like Matthew and James and John and Peter and Andrew, what would he say about me? That's that's the question that um, my mind wrestles with here. If I was in the boat, what would Jesus say about my faith? Would I even be in the boat? Now, on the other hand, I think it's very encouraging to read that Jesus said this about his disciples. Because if I'm honest, I, I know he would say that about me. I already know that Jesus would say, Steve, Steve, my disciple, my follower, your faith is oligos. Often, it's little, often. It's like a glowing ember, right? needs to be a big burning fire. It's, uh, it's like a few drops when it should be a rushing river. But I also know that along with Matthew and James and Peter and John and all the others who were there in that boat with him that day, that Jesus says to me, 
with, with my little faith, you're mine. You're my disciple. You're my follower. And I love you. And I'm with you. And I'm here for you. And whatever is weak in you, I can and I will make strong. That's the message here. Whatever is flickering in you when the storms are raging, I am able to set ablaze. Whatever, whatever sort of little trickle or drizzle your faith is, I can turn into a waterfall if you'll trust me. And not just if you'll trust me, but if you'll trust me in the storms. And if you'll trust that I give you the storms for this very purpose. To set your faith ablaze. Because it's easy to trust Jesus when things are great, right? Easy to walk outside this morning and look up at that blue sky today. No breeze, no wind. Crisp, cool air. Beautiful birds singing and go, God, such a good God. What about on Tuesday? (laughs) We're out on the road. We had no idea. Trees are blowing and limbs are falling. And we're worried about the trees falling on the houses and the lines coming down. Is it easy to go, God's such a good God, right then and there? It's a little harder, right? Translate that metaphorically into the circumstances of life. When the lines are falling in pleasant places, it's easy to say, I... I'm I'm a follower of Jesus. I trust him. Then he ordains a storm because he wants to deepen your trust. He wants to set your flickering flame ablaze. This is the message of this episode of Jesus in the storm in this swamped little boat with his disciples. It's a narrative. It's, it's, It's just Matthew recounting for us as a firsthand eyewitness what happened that day on the Sea of Galilee. So look at it with me. Just before this chapter, Jesus had been preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He'd come down from the mountain, big crowd of people following him. He'd healed some people. He'd cast out demons. And he confronted those would-be followers on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. That was in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum was on the north west side of the Sea of Galilee. So now Jesus is getting in the boat, Matthew tells us, with his disciples in order to make for the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern shore. And when they get there, he's going to continue to teach and he's going to continue to minister and he's going to move forward in his ultimate plan that's going to bring him eventually to Jerusalem and to the cross. So, they're about to cross the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a really, really big, fresh water, not salt water, a big, fresh water lake that's about 65 square miles in area. It's about 13 miles from north to south, and it's about 8 miles wide from west to east. So this trip that Jesus is about to make isn't, isn't a terribly long trip. He and his disciples are maybe going to be traveling about six miles, maybe eight miles at the very most, from the northwestern corner in Capernaum over to the eastern shore. So you wouldn't think, here's the point, you wouldn't think that on a lake that size, on a journey of that length, you wouldn't think much would happen, right? You wouldn't think much could go wrong. 
just sailing a little boat across a lake. And, and in fact, because it's just a big lake and not actually the ocean, there are some, some sort of liberal, skeptical scholars of the Bible who think that this episode never actually really happened. They say it's a myth. It's just a made-up tale, right? Because this kind of thing could never happen actually in, in, in reality on the Sea of Galilee. Well, they're wrong. Because obviously they've never been on the Sea of Galilee because it does happen. It does happen. There are some unique geographical realities that, that cause storms like the one that Matthew's describing here that cause them to really whip up on this lake in the northern part of Israel. There's some big mountains up there to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Bonafide big mountain, 50 miles to the north, Mount Hermon, almost 10,000 feet in elevation. And it gets cold up there. It snows up there. And that cold wind whips down the slopes of these mountains through the valleys and the gullies to the south where all the rivers are draining, all the tributaries are draining into the Sea of Galilee. And that big lake to the south of those big tall mountains sits in a big warm depression almost 700 feet below sea level. So it's actually not uncommon for these cold winds from the mountaintops to come ripping down into the warm valley and mix it up with the warm air around the Sea of Galilee and whip up some pretty nasty, sudden, unexpected, violent storms that come without a whole lot of warning. And that's what, that's what happened here. Well, Jesus and his disciples were crossing over to the eastern side. One minute, Galilee was calm, and the next thing you know, like Tuesday, next thing you know, boom, a furious storm comes on and stirs up waves big enough to crash over the sides of the boat that they're in and, and enough that it's, it, they think it's going to sink. It's, it's threatening to swamp the boat. We have a, in the lobby back there, I want you to all on your way out, look at it if you haven't looked at it already, a copy of Rembrandt's painting hanging out there in the lobby above the chair on the wall. Rembrandt's painting of this event, the storm on the Sea of Galilee with all the disciples in the boat. And it's a pretty good rendering of how big the storm was and how big the boat would have been and how big the waves had to have been in order to wash up over the sides of the boat in order to swamp it. So I've been there. I was in Israel back in 1995 and we rode out on the Sea of Galilee it was in a tourist boat. It was quite a bit bigger than the one Jesus would have been in. But when we were in Capernaum, we visited a place where archaeologists were working to excavate and restore an actual boat from the same time period when Jesus lived, which, which was the kind of boat that was commonly used for fishing and for transport across the sea, the, the kind of boat and the size of boat that Jesus and his disciples very well would have been in. About 27 feet in length, about 8 feet wide, about 5 feet tall. Probably pretty similar to the one that Rembrandt painted in that painting out there. And that painting gives you an idea of what it would have looked like, been like. You can, you can picture yourself in the situation. Such a big storm, high winds, constant waves, that the disciples of Jesus were absolutely certain the boat's going to sink and they're all going to drown. They're all going to die. We're about to perish, right, they say. 
And like I said, this is a true story. This really happened. It's not fiction. Matthew's just reporting the facts. And at the same time, in, in God's divine orchestration of everything, it's a really great parable of life, isn't it? It's a really great parable of life. It's not always smooth sailing, right? The waters aren't, aren't always calm and placid in our lives, right? Storms happen. Violent storms come upon us unexpectedly, and that's not that uncommon in our lives in this world, is it? Hardships are reality. Suffering isn't an if. It's a when, and it's a how much. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says. So, the point of this passage is, for us in this world and in this life, it's not a question of whether there will be storms. It's it's a question of how do you weather the storms? How do you weather the storms as a follower of Jesus? Well, the disciples in the boat turned to him, right, when the storm hit. That's the right thing to do, right? Turn to Jesus as the first resort, right? Not the last resort. And yet, what do we see here in this little story, in these few verses? When they turned to Jesus, he rebuked them. What's up with that? Why didn't he say, oh, you've come to the right place. I'm here to help you. Why did he say, why is your faith so little? Why did he rebuke them? The answer is in the contrast between how the disciples reacted to the storm and how Jesus reacted to the storm. They panicked. He slept. Why was he sleeping? What does it mean that Jesus was sleeping? It means, super scholarly insight, it means that he was tired. That's why he was sleeping. In Mark's account of this same story, Mark chapter 4, Mark says that Jesus was in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. And we ask ourselves, well, can you blame him? Is it surprising that he was sleeping? He'd been preaching and teaching non-stop. He'd been healing people. He'd been casting out demons, constantly surrounded by crowds and throngs of people. He was exhausted, plain and simple. And you say, well, but he's God. He's the great I am, right? He's the almighty one. How can he get tired? Well, because at the same time that he's fully God, he's also fully human, just like you, just like me. I mean, it's a mystery for sure how this one person, Jesus, has two natures. One that is fully divine, inexhaustibly God, and, and one that is fully human, who gets exhausted. And they're bound together in a way that can't be separated. And they're bound together in a way that, that, that they can't, those two natures can't be confused or altered, right? Jesus' human nature cannot in any way dilute or diminish his divine nature. 
When, when Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, he didn't cease in any way whatsoever to be the fullness of God. He chose to give up some of the privileges of being God, enthroned in heaven for, for a time. He chose not to use all of his sovereign divine power as God for a time, but he never stopped being God. Not in any way, not for an instant. Because God can't change. God's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And on the other side of that same coin with Jesus, Jesus' divine nature doesn't change or diminish his nature as a man. doesn't make him a superhero. Impervious to pain, fatigue. He's a flesh and blood human being. He gets hungry like we do. He got tired like we do. He felt sorrow like we do. He felt grief. He felt pain every bit as much as you do. Don't ever say, well, he was the God man, so it didn't didn't hurt him that much. Didn't affect, yes, it did. In every way, the same as you, and yet he faced all of that pain and sorrow and grief and fatigue and hardship and the rest without any sin. That's the only difference. He bled real blood. He died on a cross. He's fully human, right? He's fully God, right? And those two distinct natures are inseparably united in one person. So, again, why was Jesus the great I am, the eternal, almighty, unchanging God who never sleeps or slumbers? Psalm 121, right? Why was he sleeping? on a cushion in the back of the boat in the middle of a terrible storm. It's because the Son of Man was tired. The Son of Man was exhausted after long days of unceasing ministry. He needed a nap. It's not irreverent to say it. So see, here's the thing. What the disciples were asking as they were wondering why Jesus, why is he sleeping back there? The they're, they're not asking if he's some kind of superhuman that can sleep through this storm. They understand why he's so tired. They understand why he's sleeping from that vantage point. What they're asking was whether or not Jesus being asleep meant that Jesus didn't care about them in the middle of this storm. Here in Matthew's account, They wake Jesus up and they cry out in verse 25, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Listen, over in Mark's account, we learn this, that when they woke him up, they also said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? We look at that and we shake our heads and we say, Ha! How could these disciples for whom Jesus had done so much even think such a thing and ask such a thing? Have you ever thought such a thing and asked such a thing when the tempests of hardship are raging in your life? Just be honest in your own mind right now, heart right now. I have. Doesn't he care? Why is he letting this happen? He must not care. He must be sleeping in the back of the boat and not paying any attention to what I'm going through here. When the winds of pain and anguish are ripping through your soul and the waves of affliction are crashing over your life and swamping you with sorrow and discouragement and despair, have you ever thought? 
Have you ever said? Have you ever prayed? God, where are you and why don't you care? Like Asaph, remember Psalm 77? Has he forgotten to be gracious to me? Yeah, well, sometimes we do that, right? And this is where it's a relevant passage for us. Sometimes we can become so focused on self, what we're going through, how we're feeling about it, that we fall back into that old fleshly habit of heart, that that old me-centered attitude that thinks, you know what, there's certain things that I should have in this life and certain things that I shouldn't have in this life. There's certain things that I shouldn't have to deal with in this life. And when the cold winds rush down off the high peaks and kick up the storms in our lives, we throw up our hands and we say, hey, what is the deal? This isn't supposed to happen to me, right? What are you doing up there, God? Look at this mess I'm in here. Don't you care? So, what do you think here? Did Jesus care? When the disciples' little 27-foot boat got swamped? Of course he did. Does Jesus care when your boat's taken on water? Absolutely, of course. Of course the God-man who was tested in all ways that we are and sympathizes with our every care and worry, of course he cares. I, I, I get that way sometimes, whether I form the words in my mind or with my mouth, or, do you even care, right? The, the discontentment of my soul is, is voicing it. The bitterness and the frustration and the anger and the irritability and all of that is, is voicing that I think God doesn't care, that I'm being neglected here, that I'm being abandoned here. And then he flashes a picture of that cross in my mind. Does he care? Does he care? Who came down here and surrounded himself with sinners like me? Who laid down his life and bore the stripes and took the nails and died? Does he care? (laughs) Of course he cares. And of course, being asleep in the back of the boat did not mean that he was uncaring. It just meant he was unflappable. That's what it meant. It meant that while he cared deeply for what his disciples were going through as that storm hammered their boat, Jesus wasn't worried one whit about the storm itself. Because the Son of Man, who hungered, who got thirsty, who wept, When his loved ones died, like Lazarus, who suffered, who bled, who died, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is the the one who has sovereign authority over the creation itself. He is the Lord of the storm. William Hendrickson says, much that is wrong on earth can be corrected by the devices and ingenuity of men, but it takes deity to change the weather, right? If a branch falls and knocks a hole in your roof, we know how to fix that. What we don't know how to do anything about is to stop the storm, to change the weather. 
that takes God. That's right, right? Psalm 107, He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Psalm 89 says of, of, of the God who Jesus is, You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, and you still them. That's who He is. That's who Jesus is. But see, so often when we're in the storm, we forget that He's sovereign over the storm. And if we can remember that when the winds and waves are raging, if we can cling to that truth that He rules over it all, then, then we'd realize in the midst of the storm that He doesn't just wield the power to calm the storms when they come. He has the authority to ordain them in the first place so that we have more and more opportunities to be taught and reminded who's really in control and who isn't, and that He cares. So see, these are the messages that the disciples are learning on the Sea of Galilee that day, and, and why Jesus didn't preemptively stop the storm, but sovereignly allowed it, and allowed them to freak out so that they could see truly who He is. And that's the message God has for us today, right? It's the, it's the same message that he had for Job. And Job, man, Job got hit by a Category 5 storm that slammed into his life, right? All of his property gone, livestock gone, servants gone, family gone except for his complaining wife. Health gone. Everything washed away by the raging storms of affliction. And at the end of it all, after months of this in Job's life, years probably, more like two to three years of agony, confusion, despair. After all of that, then God brought Job to the place where he didn't just accept the tempest of suffering. Okay, I get it. These things happen, and I, and I can't freak out. I can't panic. I need to trust the Lord in these times. He didn't just get to that place. He came to the place where he beheld and fell on his face and worshipped the God of the tempest. I, I praise you for your ways are higher than my ways. Job 38, God reveals all of his divine sovereign power and authority to Job who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds, God says, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. That's, God does that with everything in my life. Thus far and no farther, God says. He's the Lord of the storm. He's sovereign. He reigns over all of the universe. And the message to Job was, Job, this is who I am. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Jesus is that same God. Jesus is the God who can not only calm the storm when in His perfect wisdom He decides it's good to do that, but He's also the God who decreed it in the first place, who ordained the storm in the first place because He knew it was good for His disciples to go through it. Because they followed him but had little faith. 
and they needed to learn to trust him more. Jesus slept, not because he didn't care about what they were going through, but, but because he wasn't worried about the storm at all. He knew it was there for their good. And he knew that it answered to him, and it could only go thus far and no farther than he said. That's why when they woke him up, he rebuked them. it's It's not because he just really hates to be woken up from a good nap. Jesus is fully human just as much as I am, but he is not petty like I am. So why did Jesus rebuke his disciples when they turned to him in their time of trouble? Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Wasn't it good that they came and cast their cares on him? Well, the problem wasn't that they came to him when they needed him. He rebuked them because he knew that they came to him more out of fear than out of faith. To them, looking at their situation through the the natural lens of human experience, you know, this lens that, that we shape and polish for ourselves to look through and see the world, and we shape it and we polish it out of our independence and our, our, our tendency to try to live life on our own terms and by our own strength and our own wisdom, this, this lens that we use to try to focus everything that, that goes on around us onto us and how it affects us, how it feels to us, what it's going to mean for me, what I'm going to do maybe to fix it or deal with it. That's the lens that in our sin we've placed in front of our eyes on this earth, and it's a, it's a, it's a myopic lens. It's a me-centered lens. It's got nothing to do with viewing life in respect to God and His sovereign wisdom and will and purposes and power. Well, we have this little lens that keeps us focused very narrowly on ourselves. And through that lens that we all by nature have and look through, the disciples viewed this storm through that lens and they viewed Jesus through that lens. And when they did, the storm looked hideously, massively, disproportionately huge, and Jesus seemed relatively small. This is what we do. You see? Their perspective of the storm couldn't have been more different than Jesus' perspective of the same storm. And their perspective of Jesus couldn't have been more wrong. And so their reaction was completely skewed and disproportionate to the actual problem they were facing in relation to who was actually in the boat with them. Their reaction was based more on fear than faith. And that's what we tend to do in our lives, especially when things don't go the way we want them to and expect and anticipate. We look all around at what's happening and we view it all through these old myopic lenses that we're so used to looking through, the ones that don't correct for our spiritual nearsightedness, our propensity to leave God out of the equation, 
And through these lenses, without God rightly focused in the picture, our troubles, our trials seem way bigger than they really are. And God seems way too small. So we panic. I am a card-carrying captain of the panic team. I know we panic because I do it well. This is what we do. We freak out. And then when we freak out, we come to him as his followers screaming, God, you got to fix it. You got to stop it. Don't you care? That's what his disciples did. And that's what he's responding to here. Why are you afraid? Why are you coming out of fear instead of faith? Why is your faith so little? Calm down. It's just a storm. And I'm here, (laughs) Jesus says. This storm's not going to do anything that I don't let it do. And then to prove it, Jesus spoke another word of rebuke, but not to the disciples, this time to the storm. It literally says he rebuked the storm itself. Be still, peace, calm down, not just to the disciples, but now to the storm. And it did. The storm. The storm, the weather's way more obedient to Jesus than I am. Way more responsive, way faster than I, it gets it more than I do. There was a great calm, Matthew says. So what's the message? What's the big takeaway? Is it that Jesus is always going to calm our storms? It's, that's not the takeaway. He's not always going to call. Sometimes he's going to ordain our storms so that we can keep learning this. We've, we've prayed day and night for long weeks and months and years for God to do something to heal, to still the storms in our lives, to, to, to fix the heartache and the suffering and the pain, and yet the waves keep coming and crashing over my boat and soaking me. Right? And we know that sometimes in God's sovereign authority, sometimes... The storm ends like it did here in Matthew 8 with an immediate great calm, but not always. Sometimes the story is more like Job's. And the storm rages for months and years. It doesn't mean that God isn't in the storm. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that his purposes aren't being worked out and accomplished. It doesn't mean that he's not working all things together for our good. And the message is, whatever the storm, however long it rages, He is the Most High God and He cares and we must trust Him and come to Him more from faith than fear. So by ordaining this storm on the Sea of Galilee and exercising His sovereign authority over it, commanding it to be still, Jesus pried these old myopic lenses from his disciples' eyes and worked to strengthen their little weak faith and helped them see the storm more like for what it really was. He helped them to see the storm more like he saw it by helping them to see who he truly is in all of his glory and all of his majesty. The smaller God seems to us, the more disproportionately huge and scary our storms, our troubles seem to us. And 
Conversely, the bigger God is in our estimation, then the more confidence we have in Him, the more we look on Him in faith as the God who He is, and so the smaller and the less significant and less scary our troubles will seem by comparison. Paul says something about momentary light afflictions, not even worthy to be compared to the glory of God and His goodness and promises and blessings that we will inherit if we rest in Him, right? That painting out there in the lobby, look at it or, 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 or just go on Google and Google it, Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea, of Galilee. It's one of my favorite pieces of art. That's why it's out there. I think Rembrandt got it. I think Rembrandt understood everything we're talking about today, that this story of the storm on the Sea of Galilee was a, a divinely orchestrated historical event and parable of life as a disciple and follower of Jesus. There are going to be storms. question is not whether they'll come. The question is, How will we weather them when they come? And I think Rembrandt knew that there's a couple of ways that we tend to to try to weather these storms and one way that we need to learn. So when I look at that painting, and you can go look at it too, I see that in the front of the boat, there's five of the disciples literally at that moment as far away from Jesus as they could be. And what they're doing is they're struggling with all of their might to set the sails, to hold the ropes, to fight the storm, to right the boat. I bet Peter's up there with those guys, right? Trying to fix it. Then, so we can do that. Then I see uh, four disciples toward the back of the boat. But they're, they're, they're towards the sides. One of them, I think, even has his back towards Jesus. And they're wringing their hands in fear. And they're staring at the storm instead of him. And, and they seem to be full of despair. They're, they're leaning over the side in desperation. Overwhelmed with fear. And then... There's a few of the disciples, two, maybe three, if you count the guy who's got the rudder, looking to Jesus. They're not up there trying to fix it themselves. They're not wailing in despair with the focus on the story. They're looking to Jesus with what little faith they had, pleading with him to help. So the question is, That's why I love that painting. Where am I in this boat when it's being buffeted by the storms? And in any storm and trial and tribulation in life, where am I? What am I doing? Which which one of the guys am I when it feels like I'm going down? A lot of times I'm the one leaning over the side, right, paralyzed with fear. And a lot of times, just as dangerous a place to be, I'm up there at the front apart from Jesus trying in all my strength to take the storm on and not let it conquer me. I got this. When I need to be back there with my Lord saying, Jesus, I need you. 
Jesus, I believe, but will you help my unbelief? My faith is weak, I admit it. I'm more scared than I should be. This storm seems way bigger than it should seem to me. It seems to me like it might be stronger than you. It seems to me like maybe you don't care, but I need you, God. Will you help my unbelief? And then let him, let him speak and calm me down by revealing his sovereign power and authority and wisdom and mercy and goodness, faithfulness to me through his word, by his Holy Spirit, by his sovereign providence and goodness. This is a story about discipleship. This is what it means to follow him. It means to look on him in faith no matter what's going on in our lives. It means you got to let him be the lens that we see all of it through. Fix your eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Then you'll be able to run unhindered with endurance. Because he is the God of all glory and power and wisdom and faithfulness. He's the author of our faith. And the perfecter, the one who will ordain storms to help our unbelief, to strengthen our little faith, and to bring it closer and closer to perfection. Amen? Let's pray to him today, and then we're going to sing and come to the table. Our God and our Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for your providence. We are so grateful for your sovereignty. We are so grateful for the way that you reveal yourself, not only in scriptures, but in all of creation and in all of history. And God, we simply ask today that you would teach us these lessons and how to trust our God, how to trust our Savior, how to trust our Lord, how to trust his care for us who came and lived and died for us with unquestioning faith. And how to trust that, Father, when you ordain storms in our lives, it's, it's in your kindness and fatherly love to discipline and train us towards greater faith and greater trust. And so, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to surrender to you. Help us to submit to you. Help us to grow. And help us to see all of life through the lens of your sovereign, fatherly goodness and almighty care for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you turn with me to page 12 in your bulletins?